1: The FT You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the escalating civil war in Libya.:
2: I think what they fear is that Gaddafi, having tried and failed to emulate what the Assad regime in Syria did in 1982, may now try and do a Saddam, to unleash everything he's got on the population and to
3: torch the oil installations
1: and the threat of rising oil prices and its implications for the global economy.
3: The really big question, the thing that could make oil go to disastrous levels, $200, would be further dominoes falling and people starting to believe that maybe Saudi Arabia or Iran could descend into chaos.
1: First to Libya. A week into the Libyan insurrection, the opposition are in control of large parts of the country, but President Muammar Gaddafi is still breathing defiance from somewhere in Tripoli.
0: Muammar Gaddafi is not occupying a position to resign from the same way other presidents did. Gaddafi is not a president. He's a leader of a revolution. The Libyan penal code before the revolution says, each Libyan who uses weapons against Libya is sentenced to death.
1: That was President Gaddafi, as translated by Reuters. Now, joining me in the studio to discuss the situation is David Gardner, the FT's international affairs editor. David, is there any chance that Gaddafi could actually hang on?
2: I would seriously doubt that. This looks like it's heading towards a final stand. The opposition is closing in on him. The finale could be extremely bloody, but I don't really see how he can recapture the country.
1: Do we have any clear idea of who the opposition are? I mean, it seems very spontaneous, and yet, on the other hand, things are quite orderly in Benghazi. So somebody must be uh, somehow organising people, A, to continue the fight against Gaddafi, but B, to make sure that things don't collapse as areas are liberated.
2: It's a very murky picture that's emerging, but it would appear to be that what you're dealing with there are local grassroots committees with, I suppose some sort of backbone provided by defecting army officers, local notables, and, and of course, the tribes, which was a very important part of the social structure of the country. And in the East, of course, I mean, that, that, that has long been the arena of opposition to the Gaddafi regime. It is remarkably, as, as it has been in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Bahrain, and elsewhere, a remarkably orderly process under the chaotic circumstances, not as in those countries, an entirely peaceful opposition, but it certainly started as that before uh, Gaddafi turned his guns, his warplanes, and so on on them.
1: And the rest of the world? I mean, it seem to be largely bystanders. You get these statements from Western capitals and so on, but still so far only talk of a no-fly zone, uh, no real discussion of military intervention to prevent a bloodbath. How do you rate their reaction? Is is that really all they can do, or do you think the West has been pretty slow off the mark?
2: I think one thing that Western coverage on the whole hasn't really captured is the growing clamour from within Libya, and around the region for a more robust intervention by the international community. For example, the UN Security Council, perhaps under local Arab regional leadership, if an intervention were to be required. But certainly part of that clamor is extremely caustic and about why do you limit yourself to mere condemnation and words. We need action because I think what they fear is that Gaddafi having tried and failed to emulate what the Assad regime in Syria did in 1982, may now try and do a Saddam to unleash everything he's got on the population, as Saddam did in '91 against the Shia Intifada in the south and the Kurds in the north, as we know he previously had used chemical weapons against, and to torch the oil installations. I mean, he, he did make that veiled threat, as did his son, Saif al-Islam, when they talked about burning Libya. So this clamour is very real and unusual to invite foreign intervention. But I think personally that a no-fly zone with humanitarian corridors is feasible, practical, realistic.
1: That talk of possibly torching the oil fields raises uh, one of the big international problems surrounding this whole Middle East Imbroglio is is the the whole issue of oil prices, which have spiked very sharply in recent weeks. With me now is James McIntosh, one of our uh, team here at the Financial Times, who's following that aspect of the story. James, how much impact can Libya, events in Libya, have on world oil prices? Because after all, it's only 3% of world production.
3: Yeah, Libya is not that important in and of itself, but the danger is that, uh, well, first of all, it's the first member of OPEC to be caught up in the um, the domino effect that's been hitting the Middle East. So it raises very um, strongly in oil traders' minds the danger that actually this could carry on and hit much bigger countries. In Saudi Arabia, the king uh, this week announced very large financial handouts That suggests that Saudi itself is a potential target and Saudi Arabia, of course, is OPEC's largest oil producer. Um, Iran is the number two oil producer and, again, the green movement there has been um, getting rather more active um, in the last couple of weeks. Of course, no one knows whether... There will be any serious upset in either of those countries, but oil traders are, are very nervous about it.
1: So, at the moment, the pr- surge in prices that we're seeing is is anticipatory, is it rather than actually a reaction to a collapse in production?
3: Well, it's a it's a mixture of both. Whilst Libya itself is not a very a, you know huge producer, it is the world's twelfth largest exporter. Um, so, if you take three percent of world oil production out of the market, uh, that's actually quite a lot. Now, there was a very big reaction yesterday when the FT reported that Saudi Arabia would be uh, ready, stand ready and will actually increase production to make up for the Libyan loss, which demonstrates how important Libya itself is, that the oil price fell quite sharply on that news. But the really big question, the thing that could make oil go to disastrous levels, $200, would be further dominoes falling and the people starting to believe that maybe Saudi Arabia or Iran could descend into chaos.
1: You mentioned uh, oil prices going to disastrous levels. What, what... What levels would those have to be? Because we're aware that in in the past 30, 40 years, there have been two big oil price shocks which have plunged the world or the Western world into recession. Is that a real danger now?
3: You say there have been two. And of course, everyone remembers Iran and uh, the OPEC um, uh, 1973 embargo. But in fact, six out of the last eight US recessions were preceded by oil price shocks. So, It really is very important. No one quite knows exactly what the level is, uh, but already the oil price, if you look at the two year moving average, um, the, the, the percentage change over the past two years has in the past been quite a good predictor of recession, um, and it is actually up an awful lot. Perhaps saving grace is that in 2008 the oil price was very high, which means that a lot of Western companies and consumers have already gone through the adjustment process back in 2008. Not buying bigger gas-guzzling SUVs, for example, um, companies moving to more energy-efficient methods of production—that um, all helps um, uh, to reduce the reliance on oil. Um, and it's it's the effort of moving from existing energy-intensive production methods and consumption methods to less energy-intensive that's what causes the recession. So. Uh, if we've already been through that quite recently, it's possible that even quite a big price spike might not be, or the existing price spike might not be that bad, we may be able to cope. But certainly if, if things start looking like they're going back above where they were in 2008, um, there's going to be some very serious repercussions.
1: James McIntosh, thank you very much. and. One of the questions you raise is the future of Saudi Arabia. So if I may, I'll just bring David Gardner back in for for one further question. I mean, that is a big, looming question. How stable is Saudi Arabia? How likely is it to be caught up in all of this?
2: The first thing you should remember is that for all over the last 30 years, people have predicted the downfall of the House of Saud. There they still are. And they've come through a hell of a lot the assassination of a king, the Iranian revolution, wars, you name it. So full marks for resilience. But what do they face now? What is going on around them is plain. Internally, they were embarked under King Abdullah on a direction of travel, a process of reform, very halting and slow. That could now, it seems to me, come to a halt. James mentioned that the king returns from three months of uh, hospitalization and recuperation, and the first thing he does is spray $36 billion at his people, not a sign of confidence. But worse, I think, is that is the old politics. That's renewing the traditional social contract of ruler and ruled, which has the knock-on effect of strengthening, as it were, the historic compact on which the kingdom is built, which is this alliance between the House of Saud and the Wahhabi religious establishment. Strengthen that, you get no reform. On top of which, they face what could be a wrenching succession crisis. I mean, the king, nobody knows exactly, probably about 87. Not well. His notional successor, Crown Prince Sultan, is in even worse shape. The man who's actually been running the kingdom in in, in the past two or three months is probably Prince Nayef, the interior minister, who wants to know nothing at all about reform. And I think you can detect his hand in the way the Bahrainis crack down on their opposition movement. Very much, I think, dictated by the bigger brother ruling family, the House of Saud to the al-Khalifa ruling family. So that doesn't add up to imminent implosion, but if you try and bottle that
1: up, somewhere down the road, it is going to to explode. David, thank you very much. A rather sobering prediction, which to to end our discussion this week. That's it for this week, so thanks to James McIntosh and to David Gardner here in the studio. I'm Gideon Rachman. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye.
2: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts
0: support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you as one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the US Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals no matter how complex Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.
3: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.,